Good afternoon, America, and welcome to Carry the Loads Lessons from the Front, the podcast that seeks to inspire us all just to do 1% more for our country in honor of the 1% who defend us from the bad guys every day. I'm your host, Todd Boating. Today's guest is Matt Thomas, former United States Army cavalryman. Uh, I think is probably the best way I'm going to say that. And, you know, <laughs> out there, Matt. And somebody uh, responded and they said, I want to know what was the name of Matt's horse? <laughs> well, you know, was, uh, it, thanks so much for having having me on the show, Todd. This is uh, it's such an honor to be here. Um, uh, you know, I hope I can live up to the standard of guests that you've had. You've had everybody from Green Berets to Navy SEALs in the show. But um, to answer your question, the, um, you know, the 9th Cavalry uh, Regiment has obviously changed the horse types over the years, right? Went from horses to air cav to, um, to what was my horse when I was in was the Bradley fighting vehicle. So uh, uh, that was probably what I would say the name of my horse was. So did, but did y'all, did y'all give her a name? Did your vehicle have a name? You know, I didn't, I wasn't a driver or a gunner on the vehicle. I was a, a dismount infantry. So I just went for the ride. I don't remember if, um, if any of our guys gave the Brad, any of the Bradley's names. Um, you know, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't remember that at all. I don't think so, but it could have been, and I just didn't know about it. So, I, I but it was a great, that. it was a great horse to have, uh, during, uh, during the Iraq war, uh, you know, cause obviously it, it was a great to go for the ride to, to our target and then, uh, have great, uh, cover and concealment and, uh, as well as, uh, firepower. So the, um, you know, the military, we in the military have a sick sense of humor. And <laughs> I know that, uh, on the Marine Corps side of the house, the guys who drove the Amtraks and the guys who drove the, uh, um, you know, the LAVs and, and, and for those out there that don't understand what those are, the Amtraks are the ones that would go in the water, get up on shore, drop the back of the, uh, the vehicle, and then we'd all storm out and storm the beach. And then the LAVs were very similar to your Bradley vehicles. They, uh, they were tired or, you know, they were wheeled vehicles and those guys who drove those vehicles, they called us crunchies. <laughs> The yeah, reason, that's pretty, that's pretty sick. No, but those crunchies is, is <laughs> not really one of those things that I want to describe, but everybody use your imagination. And, and that's, you know, the, again, that's the sick sense of humor. So did they call you guys anything like that? No, no, we were, uh, um, we referred to ourselves as legs and, and dismounts. Uh, I might've been uh, referred to as a speed bump a time or two. Okay. Uh, but uh, the Bradley fighting vehicle was actually probably closer to an Amtrak. It was a, it was a track vehicle. So uh, it could go, um, it could go through uh, water to some degree um, and it had a ramp. It's actually, there's a picture of it uh, in this painting back here. Uh, yep, I see it. Bradley with a, a, a ramp drop. Uh, actually the title of this painting is Drop Ramps. It was commissioned by our, uh, our, our Sergeant Major, our Battalion Sergeant Major uh, to kind of commemorate our, our tour um, there in Baghdad. And, and so when you, uh, when you got into the army and, and I, I know that, uh, you know, from talking to you previously, your, your story is very similar to a lot of us. You ended up in the army because, uh, school, you and school didn't agree with one another at the time. So you, uh, you sought that, which would give you the best direction and opportunities in life. And so you ended up in, in the army. So did you have a choice as to whether or not you were going into the, uh, into the cavalry? 
No. Um, so, you know, I think I told you before, one of my inspirations for, for joining the service was reading the book Black Hawk Down. Um, and, you know, my drive for going in was to go out for the Army Rangers. And, um, you know, I went through airborne school, I went through ranger indoctrination program. And uh, unfortunately, with the other 70% of, of my class washed out of that, um, what they don't, what your recruiter doesn't tell you when you enlist is that uh, if you wash out of that, uh, the army can put you wherever they want and assign you wherever they want, right? And then, um, uh, you know, when you're, when you're transitioning out of there to go to another unit, they, they let you write down what your first three choices are. Uh, and would naturally, you know, uh, I wrote down, uh, I wrote down Hawaii, I wrote down Vincenza, Italy, you know, I wrote down all of these, um, you know, these glorious duty stations. Uh, of course, I didn't get any of them. They, they wound up sending me to Fort Hood, Texas, um, with the uh, first cavalry division, which, um, it, you know, it's not glamorous, but, you know, it was actually an excellent unit with a, a lot of history. And um, so I was sure. really proud to be in the uh, in the first cavalry division and, and, and serve in that unit. Yeah, so so the cavalry, though, it, it really is truly interesting. We're not here for a for a history lesson, but but I do think it's interesting because, you know, like you said, it started off, you know, the cavalry was, um, you know, started off to be horses and, you know, people. You know, there, there was a phrase that came about over time, which was, um, you know, call in the cavalry or send for the cavalry or the cavalry's, you know, coming because that was the, you know, the, the most efficient aspect of the military that we had uh, up until, you know, mechanized units. Um, and it was really, it was the one that, that was most feared by the standard infantrymen. And then as we move on, you know, like you pointed out, it became more of uh, an air um, opportunity, and so the the um, uh, the ho or the horses, as you said, became uh, birds, right? Right. Yeah. So if I my memory, and I'm not an uh, expert on the history of the unit, but if my memory serves me correctly, it went from horses to air cav. I still think that there's an air cav unit um, in existence. Uh, as part of the first cavalry division, um, and then um, it became um, a mechanized mechanized unit. Um, where the horse became the Bradley. Uh, and there might have been some other vehicles like armored personnel carriers in there, you know, that um, preceded the the Bradley fighting vehicle. But I think ultimately it wound up being the Bradley. And then at some point, I think they had a striker unit, which did wind up being a more mobile, like wheeled vehicle. So it's changed a lot over the years, but there's always been uh, some element of, you know, at least symbolically uh, a horse involved and they still have a, a horse um, unit, a mounted, a mounted unit that does, you know, kind of like parades and a lot of ceremonies and stuff like that. So I'm going to kind of fast forward before we go backwards. And, yeah. you know, we were talking about, you know, one, one of your, one of your big things is, is transitioning you know, people training out of the military. Um, and if I understood you correctly, the reason it's become, you know, very much of a hot topic for you is because you didn't have the same challenges that a lot of people had. Um, and, you know, off, uh, off air, so to speak, I asked you the question, why didn't you have the same kind of challenges that everybody else had? And your response to me was, because you never lost sight of purpose. You never lost, 
your purpose all along was very different than a lot of guys. You know, after, after four years in the infantry with a year, a year deployed to uh, Baghdad, um, you know, and having that experience, you know, I was super focused on um, after ETSing, ETSing is just a fancy way to say, you know, getting out of the service. Uh, I was super focused on getting back to school and, and uh, completing my degree and, um, and just, and just trying to do like meet my potential and do the best that I could. Right. Um, And I, so I think, I think like what made transitioning probably easier for me is that um, I kind of, you know, I was a pretty decent student in, in high school. I just had that, that year after high school, or I just didn't do very well at college. Um, but I, I had, I had the capability to do well. Um, and so I think that um, made it, you know, a lot easier for me. And I think making my military experience kind of relative to all of the experiences I had after getting out um, also made it a lot, a lot easier to transition. You know, uh, I went from, you know, I just literally had come out of a war zone, you know, being shot at and, and, you know, um, the enemy trying to, trying to kill me and, and, and my brothers. And um, it, it, you know, after going through that, I think kind of getting out and going back to school uh, just felt easy, right? It, it, it didn't feel very challenging. And so I kind of monopolized, I realized that Kind of monopolized on that, and it just carried me forward. And I was just super focused on that mission. And you know, I think I had told you earlier as well that that you know um, I was certain that I was going to die over there. I just had the mindset that I'm probably going to get killed, right? Because if you don't have that mindset, if you don't accept the fact that you're going to get killed, you you really can't function while you're over there. At least I couldn't. So I just kind of accepted the fact that I was, I was going to die, but I did pray to God, uh, you know, while I was over and I said, God, you know, if you get me out of this, I promise that um, I will, um, I will dedicate myself to a, a life of academics and service and, and, and just, you know, living my life to the best of my ability and never slacking off. Right. And so lo and behold, you know, um, I managed to get through the war and get out, uh, you know, get out in 2005 and, and I wanted to make good on that promise. And, and so I did. Do you remember when you had that discussion with God? Do you, do you recall the circumstances that really, you know, got you to it? Was it in the middle of taking fire? Was it, was it surviving it and then yeah, so, saying, okay, now I owe you? <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was, it was, um, it was just cumulative of all of the, all of the numerous ops and missions that we went on, uh, you know, on a daily basis and on a, uh, on a nightly basis um, and just kind of going out each time and coming back. And uh, I can remember, um, I actually, I can remember the exact, moment or date or after what mission, but I do remember, um, you know, after coming back from, from a mission and laying back in, in the bunk in the barracks and, and saying those prayers on, on multiple nights and, and, you know, not only praying for myself, but also praying for uh, the guys that I was, that I was serving with. So uh, I, I would say that 
um, maybe there was no specific moment, but um, you know, it was the the culmination of a lot of different moments. Was it was that common? Do you think were were you uh, were you one of many that would that would go back and and kind of assess everything and process it and then uh, talk to God? I, I would be surprised if there weren't there weren't other guys, you know, praying and, and, um, asking for strength and, and, and help from God and saying, God, if you get me out of this, I'll, I'll, um, you know, I'll do whatever you want. Right. Uh, after, uh, afterward, um, it's kind of funny. We never really talked about it. Um, and I don't think I ever saw anybody praying, but, uh, I'm sure, you know, we were all thinking the same thing. And, you know, I think every individual kind of handles that situation, you know, differently, you know, some people, you know, were probably just so focused on the mission that, that they never even thought about it. You know, some guys may be focused on the mission, but, you know, thought about like, well, I'm getting closer and closer to this deployment being over, um, you know, uh, I hope I can make it out of here. So it, I've always found it to be very interesting. There, there are typically two camps, uh, you know, when it comes to, to war and it comes to you, the reaction you had. There are those that, that, that say what you said and have that discussion. And then there are those who go the complete opposite direction and say, you know what, if there was a God, there's no way that, that, uh, that he would allow things like this to happen and, and for people to go through these things. Um, but the camp that I find interesting is those who said, you know, Lord, please get me out of this and I'll never do anything bad again. But then once they move past it, they kind of forget those promises. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> why, why were you able to, because, you know, one of the things that you told me was you were able to keep that, uh, that sense of purpose and you made a commitment. And that sense of purpose, you know, as I told you, I lost my sense of purpose coming out. And why, how are you able to hold on to it the same way? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question. I, I, I don't know. I just, you know, I've always done my best in life just to try to keep promises. And if you're going to keep a promise to anybody, right? Like the ultimate person or the ultimate being that you want to keep a promise to is, is God right? So not to not to turn it into a religious discussion, but um, you know it it. I think um, I think because I remember you know saying those prayers you know specifically like uh, uh, um, on a routine basis, saying you know hey you get me out of this, um, and then I wind up getting out of it. You know it's like oh well you made good on your promise you know so um, I'll I'll make good on on mine and and then I just think I, I was just so. Um, relieved, you know, to be back. And, and, um, and I think making good on that promise is just what, what drove me forward. What did you see over there in your time in Baghdad? I mean, that you were, if you got out in 2005, you were obviously there with the, you know, the fall of Saddam Hussein, uh, the, the tearing down of the statue. Um, what did you see over there that, that put you in a position where you thought you were going to die? That's a, that's a great question. Um, well, so first of all, I think we rolled into, we rolled into Baghdad on April 2nd, I think 2004, after kind of prepping all of our gear and everything in Kuwait, uh, you know, about a month or so uh, prior to that. Um, 
and I went out on a resupply mission. Um, you know, I was in a gunner and a convoy to go uh, to Camp Anaconda and and bring back supplies to our forward operating base. And um, our convoy was hit by a massive IED, uh, and it just blew it blew everything off of me except you know um, my Kevlar vest. Right, uh, it was just this, it was this massive explosion. And despite it being this massive explosion, we we all walked away. Everybody in that convoy all walked away with very minimal injuries. Right. Wait, wait a minute. You said you said an IED went off, mm -hmm. and it knocked all of your equipment, all of your gear off of you, except for your Kevlar vest. Yeah, uh, my helmet, my goggles. Um, uh, if I had anything hanging on the vest, it, it was blown out of the vehicle. Uh, it, um, it pretty much destroyed the barrel of my M240, which is mounted to the top of the vehicle. And I didn't know it at the time. Um, as I wound up dismounting from the vehicle and switching to a, um, you know, cause it was basically, it was an ambush. It was a really weak ambush because, uh, there was follow-up fire, uh, after, after the attack, but it only lasted maybe about 15 seconds because our, our gunners and I was in the center of the convoy, our gunners were in the rear and uh, in the front uh, returned fire. And, um, you know, the enemy dispersed out of this palm grove on the side of the road in like 15 seconds. Uh, so by the time I mount, I dismounted from the vehicle to, to go join in, it, it, it was over. Um, but um, yeah, so it shattered the windshield. It, it, put golf ball size and ball bearing size holes on the side of the vehicle. My driver was this uh, guy named Paul Levesque that, that was maybe, uh, um, you know, a buck 40 out of the shower, like, um, you know, kept control of the vehicle. He had got hit, his face was bloodied and, um, you know, our TC, you know, he had got hit, but none of us had any serious or, or, or fatal, obviously no fatal, no fatal injuries. Um, and like, you know, I was saying that the barrel of my rifle, I didn't know it at the time, but it was bent and contorted. So, you know, I might've gotten even more injured if I had fired that, if I had fired that 240, uh, not knowing that the barrel uh, uh, Absolutely. was destroyed. Right. Um, and this was on our way out to Camp Anaconda. And, um, you know, even though we got hit, we can, we pushed forward and pushed through the ambush, responded uh, and we continued on with the mission, went and, and got supplies and, and came back. And I believe that route was called, it's a very famous route called Route Irish. I believe, and they used to call it IED Alley. Um, I, I think that was Route Irish that we, we were on, uh, uh, on the way out there to do the resupply. Okay, so I, I wanna, I, I don't very often do this, but for some reason I feel compelled to, to kind of paint this picture a little bit more. So. When you were on this convoy, how many vehicles were on this resupply convoy? Uh, I'm going to say about, I want to say there was 10 to 12, I mean, about a dozen. Okay, so about a dozen vehicles. And, and the classic ambush is you let the first vehicle pass or the first element. Yeah. Then you, you, you hit the, the main body, which would be about vehicle two or three for y'all. And... And then that way you, you sever the, the very first vehicle from everybody else. The, everybody else behind that second or third vehicle is completely immobilized and can't move. And so they're sitting ducks. And what I'm hearing you say is that you were pretty much right in the middle. Yeah. So you would have been either right behind 
I mean, you know, you were a couple of vehicles behind the explosion. And what I heard you say, though, I can understand where y'all might have survived, but the people up front, vehicles two and three, nobody died there. No, no, there were no, there were no casual, there's no casualties, no fatalities uh, on the, in that attack, in that, uh, in that fight. It was, um, there was actually two daisy chained IEDs. They were huge. Uh, um, um, you know, there was so much chaos after it all happened and we kind of pushed forward. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have time to see it then, but we, we drove the same route back. And just to be honest, it's probably the safest route because you know what I mean? You already got hit with one. There's probably not going to be another, but we drove the same route back and um, I got a chance to, you know, and I, I was up out of the LMTV as a gunner again, um, saw the, these two hot tub sized craters right next to each other. And I think we were just really lucky. I think that, that had, had the vehicle, had it been detonated either a second earlier or a second later, we probably would have saw, we probably would have saw um, more cat. We probably would have saw casualties, um, more serious casualties and fatalities. And that, that kind of puts things in perspective as far as the conversations that you began having, because it probably would have looked very different for you if someone had actually, uh, if you'd received casualties, you know, KIAs, um, my guess is it would have put it in a completely different perspective. Yeah, well, maybe. I don't know if it would have changed much because that was just week one. <laughs> so oh, that was your first week in country. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that happened in the first week. It was um, the the unit that we were actually on that mission with the first armor division, the unit that we were relieving, and because um, they were transitioning out, um, and you know. It, you know, since it was in the first week, it, it was obviously kind of set the tone really for the rest of the year for me personally. Um, you know, but there was there was a lot of other stuff that happened, you know, that we could talk about for hours. There's a lot of other stuff that happened after that, you know, including, you know, actual loss, right? Losing some of my closest, some of my closest friends and uh, closest uh, brothers in arms. So let's let, let's talk about those that that made it through and and i'll ask you later about who you're carrying you know to this day um guys you just referenced i know um the individuals though that that you saw transition and again that really kind of got us talking here you had a lot of of uh success transitioning but a lot of guys don't and i know you've seen a lot of those you, you've had a front row seat to a lot of those difficult transitions. Why do you suppose everyone coming out of the, well, I shouldn't say everyone, why do you suppose that the vast majority of service members, especially those who saw combat, have difficulty re-entering the civilian world? Well, me personally, I don't know if I could say that it was a vast majority. I don't, I don't know. I don't have the data handy to know like what percentage of people that go into the service, um, you know, struggle when they get out, you know, or struggle to transition, um, you know, when they get out. Um, uh, I would be, I'd be surprised if the majority weren't more successful, but the, there's still a significant, I think there's still a significant number of, of um, soldiers that, 
that struggle um, when they get out. Uh, a lot of them, I think, tend to be in the combat arms. Um, and I think in the combat arms, uh, if you if you uh, if your MOS is infantry, right? It's it's really difficult. At least back then, it was really difficult to um, translate your military experience into into civilian world experience, right? It it you know I think a lot of guys struggled with how can I how can I take this super intense, um, super um, you know, just, just tragic and, and, um, you know, oftentimes horrible experience, you know, especially if, if they were deployed and how can I translate that into, into some kind of direction after I get out, whether it's a career, whether it's going to school, whether, um, and I think, um, you know, a lot of the, the troops that are in combat arms just, just, struggle because they just kind of came out of something that that is probably the most ultimate experience that they're ever going to have in their lives um you know uh, there's probably nothing more outside of skydiving and bungee jumping and not even that right that that you're going to experience that that can really match match that and so i think when they look at the opportunities before them when they get out um i think that they're bored right They, they find things boring i think that um they they don't have the structure that they once had. Um, they um, and a lot of them, I think, are affected by um, you know various levels of PTSD. And you know, and PTSD, you know, at that time in in the mid two thousands um, was something that was it wasn't like a new concept, but it was getting a lot more attention. But it still it still wasn't a thing that was really being very diagnosed, you know, at the time it took years for a lot of guys filing claims for uh, VA claims to get, you know, to get um, claims approved for PTSD. Right. And so I think that there's a spectrum of PTSD as well. I think some, you know, a lot of people have different levels, uh, different struggles with PTSD, some mild, some really severe, depending on what they experienced. Right. And so I think you take a combination of all of those things and you get this kind of recipe for, for, um, you know, struggle after, after you get out, you know, you don't, you don't know what to do. Right. And, you know, like I told you when we spoke previously, it broke my heart um, a lot. And, and it's something that didn't, I didn't really re- realize how heartbreaking it was to me until about 2015 when, when I moved out to Texas and, um, and started getting involved with carry the load. Um, I think at that point um, is when is when you know I realized, wow, you know, the past ten years have been going really well for me. You know, I, I've certainly had struggles, but nothing that can even compare to some of of you know some of the issues uh, you know people that I talked to and you know some of the the gentlemen that I served with uh, were experiencing. So. When you talk about, you know, tragic, heartbreak, um, eye-opening, what is, what is one of the, what is one of the, the relationships that you became aware of in someone's tragic struggle that you could, if you were going to educate America to, hey, you need to be aware of this stuff. It, because awareness, just like we talk about with Carry the Load. Awareness is the most important mission that we have, making sure that people understand the reason why we honor 
those who made the ultimate sacrifice on Memorial Day. Okay, so now you're transitioning using the same exact uh, method. We got to make America aware of this first. And the reality is much of America does not understand the struggle that you just referenced and some of those tragedies. Can you share with everybody one of those stories that, that, that sticks with you that you go, golly, if we could just solve issues like this or situations like this, we wouldn't have nearly the problem that we have with these guys transitioning. Yeah, I won't. I won't name anybody specific, but um, I, I can. I can rattle off, you know, several um, several stories that you know that I've observed um, that I've that I've heard about. Um, you know, if you look at, if you take a look at, you know, there's a really good picture of my platoon when um, when that we took in Kuwait, and it was like our last day before we were flying back to the states um, in like April, 2005, and it's our whole platoon, right? And there were, um, you know, there were a couple of guys that, that weren't there, you know, because, you know, they were killed in action. Um, but then if you were to take that same picture today, there would be a few guys missing, right? Um, that were in that picture because they, they succumbed to, um, you know, they succumbed to their struggles that, they had after they got out, you know, that they, they committed suicide or, or something else happened. Right. And, um, you know, I think I told you that, you know, at the time that, that, you know, I was ETSing, you know, Facebook was just becoming a thing. Social media in general was, was just gaining traction. And, and, and ETS is, is end of. Right. I forget exactly what the acronym uh, means, but it's basically a fancy way of saying it, you're getting out of the service. Your your service. It's end of end of end of time and service. I mean. End of time and service. I think something like that. But yeah, we we uh, use the EAS end of active service. But yeah, anyway. yeah. So so you know, at that time that I was getting out, um, you know, social media was just a thing. And you know, a couple of years later, it winds up social media winds up blowing up, and you know, everybody's got Facebook, and so I'm reconnecting with with all these guys that I served with and, you know, and, and mutual friends that, that served um, that were clearly struggling because, and, and they were, I think that they were reaching out, um, you know, kind of indirectly by, um, you know, posting some really dark stuff and just posting very publicly, you know, the stuff that they were dealing with. And you know, we had guys that were dealing with alcohol and uh, issues and drug issues and, guys that um, were dealing with depression and in um, some dealing with some really intense PTSD and, you know, even guys that I met that I didn't serve with that, that I met along the way that had maybe served a year later or a couple of years later, you know, experiencing the same things. Um, you know, several, several of the men that I served with uh, in 2005 wind up going back to Iraq in, in, in I think, I believe it was a 2007 deployment and, and, there was a lot of loss there and a lot of tragedy and, and, um, you know, so I think in having some, you know, some private conversations with some of these guys on like Facebook messenger and, and talking to them and, and just realizing that, wow, you know, this person's really dealing with a lot. I mean, I think, I think at the time I, uh, I kind of blew it off. Like, Oh, you know, you're just, this person is just crazy. Right. Like, or just, you know, must be drunk or, or high or something like that. But, but, you know, I come to realize when when soldiers start committing suicide and um, and the 22 kill 
um, statistic is is very real. I think my platoon is uh, is representative of this of that statistic. Um, it makes you realize that you know this is this is these are very serious issues. So I think the the culmination of all of all of those conversations that I had, all those social media posts that I read, the, the conversations I had over the phone, conversations I had uh, with you know some guys um, when we got back together for reunions, just made me you know realize how much um, struggle that there that there is in the veteran community, uh, especially post you know post combat experience. Well, and, and, you know, what you're talking about, Matt, is um, what I latched on to what you just said was that you're, you know, you've been through all of this and you've been through it with these guys. You, I mean, you know better than anybody what these guys are dealing with, but yet the things they're saying, we weren't even really trained to deal with that brother to brother. Um, you know, we, we may have gone through some classes and whatnot, how to recognize certain things, you know, that, that death is a part of what we do. Um, but like you said, you know, you're, you're listening to him say some things going, oh man, he's a little, being a little crazy right now. Or when in reality, that's just, that's the struggle coming out and it's the hand going up in the air saying, I need help. Right. And, and I, and I think that's, that's really, you know, where I was going with this more than anything that you know, it's important for us as Americans, we're not, we don't necessarily need to be fixing it. Okay. I I never saw combat. I never had a shot fired at me in anger. It took me being involved in this organization. It took me talking to a lot of these guys to understand the depression, the suicidal thoughts. Although those are things that I don't personally relate to, they're very real. And we have to be aware of them. And when I see something like this, now my antennas go up. And this is what I want Americans to understand. No one's asking you to fix it. But, but you've got, just like you said, you didn't even recognize it at first, having been there with them. But right. our antennas have to go up and we have to make people aware. Folks like 22 Kill that you right. mentioned. Folks like Farm that I know you're a big part of. Certainly anyone at Carry the Load will utilize the no wrong door concept. You just get in through one of these doors and we're going to get you where you need to be. But it's important that that Americans understand when you see that, don't write it off as someone being crazy or just drunk or just high or whatever the case may be. Because the reality is that's just their way of acting out their their challenges. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, you kind of, just wanted to touch on something you said that that you know we're not really asking America to to fix it, but I think Americans, you know, even if you never served before, um, can do really really kind of small things to to kind of help, right? Um, I'll give you an example. Um, um, so I'm, you know, you had mentioned farm, and and you know I'm not as involved with farm as I, as I once was, um, for, you know, a bunch of different reasons, but like, I really love that organization. It was, it was founded by, um, you know, several gentlemen that, that I had served with and, you know, several leaders that I'd served with that I admire and respect. And, and I love their program and what they're doing and the idea behind, um, dirt therapy, um, you know, getting your hands in the soil and having a purpose and, you know, raising crops and, and learning how to grow and garden and farm, um, as a form of therapy, right? As a form of, of healing. 
right? Um, and I think, you know, participating, you know, and donating to organizations like that and um, is one really small way that I think, you know, your average American can kind of help, right? Uh, you know, another organization that I've recently gotten involved with is, I'm not sure if you've heard of them, the Warriors Keep. So the Warriors Keep, um, they do outdoor adventure therapy for heroes, Oath, right, is their, is their slogan. Um, and I recently, uh, you know, a few months ago, got to go on a, an expedition up a, a mountain with them and just, just walking, you know, and just hiking, you know, uh, as a form of therapy and, and camaraderie, um, you know, you don't have to be a veteran to do that kind of stuff, you know, um, just kind of participating in that kind of stuff, uh, to lend a hand, uh, to struggling veterans is a, is a great way that I think, uh, uh Americans can help. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, I think it, awareness is important, but it definitely has to be more than awareness. I think, you know, it, it just doing small things, I think really helps. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that, I, I just, that's so important and, and really on the heels of, of the pandemic, Americans in general, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of statistics lately, you know, the depression, the, you know, the, the, uh, the loneliness that, uh, you know, the isolation oh, yeah. and we, we were joking, I got caught in traffic coming home that, you know, that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are, you know, they're no longer recognizing COVID they're all out on the road. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, it, it really truly is we're social animals and it's important that we surround ourselves with, you know, with other people. Um, and, you know, as much as I enjoy, you know, this kind of interaction, it doesn't replace, you know, a face-to-face -face meeting with you and looking you in the eye and shaking your hand. That that's what makes us human beings. And like you said, the things that that can that can help as Americans, you don't have to have served. But a lot of times it's something as simple as tell me your story. You know, people that the one of the biggest, you know, therapies is just being able to tell somebody yeah, absolutely your story. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the other thing that I would throw out there to, you know, to people watching this, ask, just ask, people will tell you, don't be afraid to, to ask them about their background. You know, hey, thanks for your service. Will you tell me what you did? Because that's, you know, we hear that all the time. Thanks for your service. And that's, that's where it stops. And I'm, and, and I just want to encourage people, keep going, keep going, ask them more. Ask yeah. them what they did because yeah. there, there's there's a good story there that's therapeutic for somebody to tell. Yeah, sharing the stories is one of my favorite things to do each year. Carry the load uh, when you're just walking with people, right? Like walking and talking is just you know it's probably one of the most therapeutic things uh, I think uh, you can do, even even as not a veteran, right? Just as, just as a human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Matt, I, I really appreciate the time you've uh, you've been you've been very gracious. You've actually you've really stirred uh, my thoughts on a lot of things, and I and I really do appreciate you you know taking the time to do that. Um, you know, one of the things that that's very important to us here at Carry the Load is that we we always remember um, you know those who made the ultimate sacrifice, and I and I know that. Uh, you've got at least one or two people that you carry with you to this day. So would you mind sharing that with us who you're carrying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, first of all, I, I carry with me all of the men that made the ultimate sacrifice uh, from one nine cab headhunters 
uh, in the 2004-2005 deployment for Operation Iraqi Freedom. But uh, in particular, uh, I carry with me Sergeant Jack T. Hennessy. Um, well, if you give me a minute, I can tell you a little bit about Jack. Please um, do. Jack um, was uh, someone that I actually started my my military service with. He and I um, were in the same platoon in basic training. Um, we were in the same platoon at Airborne School. We um, both uh, went through um, Ranger indoctrination program together and washed out. And um, probably even more fascinating is that uh, we both got assigned not only to the same division after washing out, but also the same battalion, the same company, and um, the same platoon in um, in Fort Hood, Texas, with, with the First Cavalry Division. So uh, Jack, um, you know, lost his life in a firefight uh, during uh, our deployment to um, Baghdad in support of, of OIF, and um, I carry with him with me every day, and he is absolutely one of the uh, motivators for just my life in general. I, I kind of push forward and, and give 100% uh, in his honor. Man, that's awesome. I, I really uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time to share that with us. And thanks for, for all your insight. I mean, you know, you've got a, you've got an interesting story in, in that it's, it's very similar, but it's got, you know, to a lot of us, but yet it's got a couple of, of unique angles to it that that uh, that really gave me cause to uh, to pause and think. So, Matt, thanks for uh, for your time. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, for all of you out there in uh, in America, I want to let you know our next episode is going to be uh, Tuesday, November the second. Tanner Iskra, former Marine who also hosts a uh, a podcast for uh, the VA and it's called born the battle B O R N E born the battle. Tanner is uh, quite the expert podcaster. I'm striving to be like him. Maybe one of these days when I grow up, I'll be uh, as good as him, but so we'll see you again on uh, November the 2nd and that'll be at uh, 5 PM central. So until then, my name is Todd boating and I'm carrying all the members of the second battalion, first Marines who recently gave their lives getting folks out of Afghanistan so that they could uh, live a free life. They selflessly gave theirs. So my question to you is, who are you carrying?